0: Welcome to Academic Conversations. I'm Alicia. I'm Mary. And this is Merton and Morgan. In this episode, we are going to discuss a book by Marianne Wolf called Reader Come Home, The Reading Brain in a Digital World. Hi, Mary. Hey, Alicia. So this book starts out um, discussing how humans were never meant to read. What do you think about that?
1: Well, that surprised me the very first time I learned that from her first book, *Cruised in the Squid. I didn't really understand the science behind how our brains have developed in order to read, and I think that it's not unusual for people, even people who have literacy certifications, degrees, and experience like us to not really know the brain science behind how kids learn to read and how we learn to read. So our brain's pretty
0: miraculous. I think people um, often forget that there is a long developmental process of learning how to read and and how that really changes the structure of the connections that the brain makes when we read.
1: Right. The whole thing, I think, um, falls under the idea of the brain being adaptable or that plasticity, which we're going to talk about in a minute. But just the idea that the brain has had to, has to adapt in order to read. It's not something that is naturally programmed in to our, to our, the brain that we're born with.
0: And so you mentioned a book that we had read uh, previously, The the Proust and the Squid. And this is when I was first introduced to Marianne Wolf's work. And she kind of talks about in that book, I think it was 2007, uh, maybe that she was writing about how human beings actually had to acquire the skill of, of reading and how that's changed and she actually had to rewrite the a chapter in that book because by the time she had done her research and written the book and it was published, the digital age had kind of come about and mm-hmm. um, people were reading on the computers and e-readers and, and how that had, had uh, changed the way that we read and comprehend and receive information. So she actually had to rewrite a whole chapter which I thought was so interesting and yeah. that's basically what this book is really about about is um, what is that going to be for readers in the future and is it going to change? Has it already changed? So we're going to dive into the first two chapters, which are actually formatted in letters, which I think is really...
1: You love the letters. I love the letters. Mm-hmm.
0: She writes um, to the reader and each chapter is a different letter. So we're going to talk actually tonight about letters one and two. I love how she just says, dear reader, and she goes um, goes through in, in that format.
1: So Well, it's interesting that she Talking about reading as po- a possible lost art, I almost feel like that's 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 one of the roads that she um, looks down. And not to say that that's exactly what has to happen. I think she's very she's a scientist, so she's very um, open to things might change, they might not change, um, there might be some change. She but the idea of reading um, possibly being something that becomes a lost art, and then that she wrote this book in letters. I think that's really poignant because she letter writing is a lost art so and also I just want to say her writing style is beautiful I think her writing style is the type of writing that you have to really pay attention to what she's writing to extract out what it is that she's meaning and it can get to be difficult sometimes because it requires your focus and attention and as I'm reading her book I'm thinking oh this is why this book appeals to me and also why it doesn't appeal to me sometimes so there's so many layers of meaning in this book I think um, that Definitely her first book, like you said, helped us get an idea behind the science, but she left us at the end of that book sort of wondering, you know, if the brain adapted so much over time to read, what's going to happen if we don't read the read or don't read the same way or the same material anymore? What could possibly happen? So I think as parents, I mean, I know it hits me as a mom as well, as a teacher. How about you? Do you think about that with your own kids
0: too? Oh, absolutely. And then uh, the the new readers that I work with uh, daily, I see. You mentioned um, the quality of our attention, yeah. and I definitely see that um, in the the young readers. They definitely don't have the stamina to even listen to a story mm-hmm. as much as they did ten years ago in the classroom, and much less have have the stamina to get through their own text. Mm-hmm. Their their attention is is short.
1: Yeah. Well, one of the questions we posed to ourselves as readers and as um, podcasters was about the quality of our attention and has it changed and what does that have to do with the reading brain? So let's get into that a little bit. She pointed out to us that we might want to look at ourselves first and um, ask ourselves some questions about you know, our own memory or our own ability to lose ourselves, or she says, fall into a book. Do we still have the same attention? Do we still have the same joy for reading that we may have had at one time? Or has that changed? And then um, we, have, we need to answer that question. And then what does it have to do with the brain? So in other words, why is it is it occurring? What did you think about that? Did you answer that as a yes or no? You read a lot, I know.
0: I do read a lot, but I also found myself uh, listening to a lot of books on tape. Because um, our lives are so busy, and so I have a subscription to Audible, mm-hmm. so I listen to a lot of books on Audible. And I actually purchased this book on Audible and tried to listen to it, and and I couldn't. There were, there was so much information; it required so much of my attention. She talks about deep reading mm-hmm. this requires deep reading mm-hmm. and deep concentration and so I ended up I still have it on audible but I also ordered the print version I do notice that the audible books I read need to be books just for enjoyment and if I really want to read something for information or to really have to be attentive to it I need it in print yeah and I did and we discussed that it was hard for me I would try to talk to you about books that I had listened to and I really didn't have a good memory I couldn't remember right because I was doing something else while I was, I was listening to it. So I found that to be interesting. I didn't really realize that until I was trying to listen to this book. And I thought, okay, I need more concentration.
1: And I, I realize you, you get through your audiobooks a lot faster than I do, but I don't multitask. If I'm listening to an audiobook it's because I'm on my elliptical and I'm not doing anything else, or I'm lying in bed and I'm trying to relax and I'm not doing anything else. So I know, you know, you'll fly through a book that it takes me much longer to get through on Audible, but I know that if I don't pay attention to it at all, that or more, you know, uh, if I try to multitask, let me say that, and with a book, I'm not going to remember even the prior events that happened the last time I listened. <laughs>
0: So. Right. And you can recall details that I don't even remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know that we have have read the same book. Yeah. So that was a really aha for me when I read this. I was like, oh. And she, she says um, in the very beginning that when you, you remember who you are as a reader, but cannot summon that, she calls it um, an attentive ghost.
1: Yeah.
0: And that to me was... Was my that attentive ghost was my attention
1: mm-hmm. um,
0: because I think we are so busy and we we are doing a lot of things simultaneously and you're mm-hmm. we're missing out on things or I was the details of a book and just being able to get lost in the story. My mind was there, but it's just not the same as having that it's not in the your same, hand.
1: Right. I've noticed that I'm starting to look at books now that I'm reading. Like I read young adult books, I read kids' books, I read books for fun for me, and I also read professional books. Those are pretty much the four categories genres of books that I get into and I've noticed that I'm now I've started adding to our Pinterest page even a board with books that demand your attention. So there are books that really pull you in. They help, you know, sort of facilitate that process of bringing the reader back into a book because I think with all the choices kids have, I know I read a lot when I was a kid because that's all there was for me to do. I was good in school and I read all the time because it was it was something to do. You know, there wasn't there wasn't all the weren't all the options that kids have now and now they do have a lot of options so I think that makes us have to really think more about what kind of books are we bringing to kids we really need to bring them things that they can really hang on to so I hadn't really thought about that before in that way so what does that have to do with the reading brain the fact that um the quality of our attention is changing in the book she talks about um that there are some things that we can be excited about we don't really this isn't all you know gloom and doom and oh this is Happening isn't it terrible that all these kids with their screens? You know, because we know we're on them as much as the kids are. Almost one thing that she revisits over and over in the book is that there was a time when our culture, human culture, transitioned from an oral culture to a reading culture, and there were just as many fears then that recording things and writing would change the brain. They didn't know about brain science, but they knew that they had incredible memory. You know, and so what? What's going to happen to our memory if we start writing things in books? And I'm. Sure sure that our brain has changed tremendously over you know that time to- that period of time um and now we're at another period like that but we were aware of it and we know it and we can learn about it did that
0: strike you at all yeah and we are the people that developed the digital tools mm-hmm. as readers right she she talks about the impact on on children a lot and and she has a quote on, on page five, she has a quote that says, we might never reach our full potential as human beings if, you know, if if we never learned to read. And so whether it's, whether it's print or, or the digital age, the act of reading is still vital to, to us as, as human beings, to our civilization. And it has evolved and I think we'll, we'll continue to do so. But I think it's, it's important for our su- survival. Right.
1: And we are still a liter, a literacy based culture. That is not changed. You still have to be able to read and write to participate fully in our society. And so if we're not thinking about these things, and if we're not helping kids, shepherding them along this path, and parents too, because a lot of parents are at a loss. I think parents sense that something's happening and they're not comfortable with it, but it's so prevalent, the use of screens in our society that, and phones especially, that they don't really know what it is that's bothering them about it. You know, I think this is more concrete. It's like, well, this is really changing our physiology.
0: And parents help their children the way they were taught in school. Right. And many um, of our parents weren't brought up in this um, digital age, and so therefore they don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. Um, Many times, you know, our our kids are helping us with the technology and showing us what to do, so I think we're all at kind of a loss right now uh, about how to help, but she gives a lot of good
1: information in here on how to do that, so... Um, One other thing I wanted to point out is that the quote towards the end of the chapter um, about the young reader can either develop all the multiple deep reading processes that are currently embodied in the fully elaborated expert reading brain, or the novice reading brain can become short-circuited in its development, or it can acquire whole new networks in different circuits. And I think I really um, admire her practicality and her scientific way of thinking. She's not here to, you know... Win you over with propaganda? You know her point. uh, She, you know, she obviously has her thoughts about this, but she's also saying we don't really know exactly what's going to happen, but we really need to take a look at what it could be. And she says there will be profound differences in how we read, how we think, depending on which processes dominate the formation of the young child's reading brain. And later in the book, she gets into how all these things are linked together. So Mary, that's a nice segue into chapter two, and I'm going to start
0: this with kind of piecing together. um, a couple of sentences, and she really kind of talks about how the brain itself in, in reading was an unnatural cultural invention that goes beyond its original function to format completely new circuits for reading and. Chapter two is really about building a reading brain and and everything that it takes to do that, and some of the misconceptions that you and I have heard throughout our years as, as educators about how people feel about how reading is really acquired. Yeah,
1: and I, I include myself in that because I only started learning about brain science years back from somebody who came to talk to a group of teachers who uh, he happened to work with in a school that focuses on helping kids that have dyslexia. So he had been interested in brain science for a while. And I know Marion Wolf does a lot of research around that as well. So, but still, it, you know, she goes so in depth with it. I really admire her, <laughs> again, her science. I think that all of Letter Two is really about, you know, what does it take for the brain to read? So what has to happen? And you would think that that would be very maybe dry or difficult reading, but is that how you found it to read? I found it to be so interesting. I think it was difficult
0: just because there's a lot of information about the brain and parts of the brain and how they function. But I found it interesting that she said um, there are these multiple sophisticated functions that happen to go beyond its original biological functions, which are vision and language.
1: Right. So the whole idea of—I like the phrase she use—repurpose and recycle. Um, the brain has structures in place, like vision, like you said, and language. Those are those are innate and those are hardwired. But the brain repurposes some of those abilities to form a more sophisticated purpose for reading and. It's really miraculous. It's it's when you read about it, it's hard to imagine just how incredible it is that our brain can do that. I, I don't know. I find myself in awe of it. Well, and it,
0: it just reinforces the notion that reading is not natural and that you're not born with this genetic ability to be able to read. It's it's a learned skill. Anyone can learn. It's not easy, but but it's attainable for for everybody. And that makes me feel a little bit relieved.
1: Right? Relieved <laughs> in what way? Tell me, what do you mean?
0: Well, that um, that we have the capacity as, as teachers to help anyone have a rich, literate life if they want to do that. And the path the pathway to that may not be the same for every reader, but there's always a way because your brain is not, you're, you're not predisposed to it.
1: Right. I feel like it goes a long way toward helping explain why we see such a variety of things that seem to be, well, we can think of them as hindrances or obstacles, but that's a deficit way to think. Um, but things that kids come to in the process of learning to read that makes reading more difficult for them or might not be seen as typical. I'm starting to wonder what typical is with a reading brain because there are so many different things that we need to understand in order to intervene or support or walk alongside a kid. And time is the factor that just keeps screaming at me in this learning. Like, we need more time. We need the time to learn how to do this. And we need the time practice it and we need the time to give kids the time
0: to learn. And, and I think to send the message to say it's okay that it's hard mm-hmm. because it is. and right. it's okay that it it like you said that it's going to take a while. Because it will. Right. It's a long developmental process, and that's okay. Yeah. Where I feel like as a teacher of reading, if a child didn't get it immediately, it was something I was doing wrong, or it wasn't natural for that child not to acquire letters and sounds, let's say, in this timely, rapid
1: manner. Yeah. I think those feelings are what probably drove you and myself, too, into the areas that we've gone to try to understand reading better was just that looking at a kid and thinking why did? Why am I getting one kid after another that everything's different with each kid and I don't know what to do you know they gave me this program to have kids read and page by page it doesn't work for half the kids in the class what do I do you know and the more you pursue it the more you realize it's it is a science. It's a science and an art. It's both of those things. And we're not necessarily treating it that way. And I
0: think it's taken us years to understand this and more research continues mm-hmm. to come out about it. Mm-hmm. And I think for new teachers to just know you're on the right track, it it takes a while.
1: It takes a while. And a lot of kids are going to be okay while you're learning. They're not going to, you know, be worse off or fail because you didn't know everything right away. But that you have to be motivated to keep improving and keep getting better and you know you and I've talked about too how we get sometimes people who stand out in the field of reading who are you know sharing a message that this is the way this is the one way this is the right way if you don't do it this way you know and that that's true for some kids but it's not going to be true for every kid ever so um I thought the whole thing about the plasticity the repurposing and recycling oh and just the fact um I didn't I don't know what page this was on but she said somewhere that the relatively new human invention of reading, and that's thousands of years old, but that's how long it takes the brain to actually hardwire, I guess, a skill, right? So that's why like, reading is still considered new yeah. to the brain. which is interesting still a new invention to the brain yeah but the brain's trying (laughs) it's trying to rearrange and accommodate itself so she also talked about what affects the brain um as far as what does it take to read one of those i think was what it reads so whatever you're reading is going to affect your brain development
0: and then she talked about how it reads Mm -hmm. so whether you do print or screen affects the way that we read, Mm -hmm. Um, your methods of instruction. So how was your reading life formed, right? What instruction did you get? Um, And that's interesting to me because I have been throughout my career in that school of thought that you were just talking about, this is the right way, this is the only way. Yeah. And the more that I, I read and um, I am get more educated myself on the subject, there are different ways. And she even says there's no blueprint. Right. Each, each learner's different, each reader's different. And right. that's, that's relieving to me too.
1: And that's not to say that we don't know that there are effective practices Absolutely. that work for a lot of kids. We do know that, and, and we definitely use those practices. But... Um, it's just when someone's coming and telling a group of teachers that they all have to do it this way, It's um, sometimes it goes a little too far towards wanting people to conform to something rather than empowering them to understand it.
0: And I think that's why we need a variety of strategies, information, and knowledge in our toolbox so that we are able to address
1: those needs absolutely as they come up
0: mm-hmm. for kids.
1: I like the phrase sonic speed automaticity. <laughs> She talks about how quickly the brain works and all the different things that it has to do. Now, having read this chapter a couple times, still not a brain scientist. I'm here to admit that, you know, but um, I would encourage anybody who's interested to definitely get a hold of the book. And, um, if you're a science nerd or you're really into the brain, you definitely want to read chapter two and you probably want to get a copy of Proust and the Squid because she lays it all out in Proust and the Squid as well. Pretty much, I feel like what she did in Proust and the Squid, she has in chapter two. It's all in this eye-opening. book. opening yes. Yeah. So Mary, what do you think
0: about it? Have you ever heard, well, you're either a right brain person or a left brain person. Yeah. You're either a reading person or a math. And she kind of blows that up and mm-hmm. says that you are, um actually when when reading is happening your whole brain's activated yes both hemispheres are activated and she she has a metaphor of um of a circus or a reading circus <laughs> yeah and she talks about the um three large rings which are vision language and cognition and then two smaller rings which um, deal with motor functions and then affective affective functions which are emotions which we talk about a lot.
1: We are going to and get was so into the emotions I'm ready to go there because that's what I think, that's what builds that, that piece of the reader that makes you want to go back for more and more because you are able to play out those emotions in a safe way or find your own emotions experienced by someone else, not feel alone or have, you know, more intense emotions than maybe you had as a young person and if we don't do that as readers then why why keep coming back and working at it you know why work so hard at it I don't think that um, kids are going to do that because there are a lot of simpler options Um, when you talk about those regions I just want to say that I love so much that she talks about how back to this the automaticity um, how this Sonic speed automaticity for the neurons works at the local level, which she calls, you know, sort of like the bigger structure, like vision. And then it allows for it to go across an entire structural expanse of the brain. So whenever we even name a single letter, we're activating entire networks of specific neuronal groups in the visual cortex. That corresponds to the entire network of language-based cell groups, which corresponds to networks of articulatory motors, cell groups, and all of this in milliseconds. And that's just one sentence <laughs> from this section. But yes, the whole brain, it really is the whole brain is involved. And when you're thinking about that, first, the brain has to adapt to this. It's not already hardwired. Secondly, the whole brain is involved. So why wouldn't there be a huge variety in the way that people approach this task? Because, and you mentioned earlier about environmental factors. You want to talk about that? Well, you were saying, what do you think about the environmental factors
0: well, to this. Well, we were just saying, you know, she talks about how you read, how you acquire it, but I also think, I mean, we talk a lot about oral language. If you're read to in the home, we, we know that there um, is a huge vocabulary deficit from children that are read to and talked to before they enter school to children who are not read to and talked to mm-hmm. before they enter school. That word gap is, is a real
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, issue in education, and just if, if you're not surrounded by that um, story language, if if you haven't read a lot of stories or been exposed you don't know how the layout of the stories go you don't know how the language of the stories happen and it just really i feel like affects the way your brain is formed
1: right so as a reader if the brain is as sophisticated in reading as we've been learning it is and then environmental factors vary across a wide continuum of gender culture um socioeconomic level nutrition uh, nutrition all of the things that can come into play and for me um, kids who are coming from another language group think about all those factors layered on top of just the physiological functions of what's happening in the brain I feel like we're doing pretty well (laughs) that we've taught anybody to read sometimes (laughs) do you know what I mean it's kind kind of of funny like how are we doing it without knowing all that but also the things that frustrate us are frustrating us for a reason because there's so many and then factors we know
0: the effects of trauma on the brain
1: yeah we shut the brain
0: down that too so you can't think and so if all of these to me when when i'm thinking about all these activated places in your brain at once and how everything has to work together it's just, like you said how do they and and they're dealing with emotional trauma from home or or maybe from what they've seen in other countries or mm-hmm. they're having social issues at school, all of that affects what they learn, what they retain, what they remember,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and it's its just miraculous that they're able to I know. continue to do that.
1: Sometimes it's not an easy thing to do. I was going to say also that um, I know that there are kids who have learned to read in a different language that has distance, a lot of distance from English. So, for example, if you learn to read Japanese or you learn to read Arabic... For example, before you learned, learned to read English, your brain has developed differently because different types of written language systems um, shape the brain differently. And so when we're asking a kid to come from somewhere else where they've Learn to read and write in another language and then, you know, reshape the brain again around English. And then we expect them to do that in an unfair amount of time that doesn't honor development and doesn't honor the systems that are in place. It's just such a travesty to do that to kids. I see kids overcoming it all the time and I I admire them greatly for being able to do it. But also I see kids who can't and they're constantly being told they need to. You know, try harder, do better. Uh, if you can't read it, you can listen and answer the question. And that's not how it works. That's literally not how the brain develops. And there's
0: so much confusion when they're when they're doing that. And like you said, they just power through. Yeah. And it's incredible.
1: They try to. I love it that she says anybody who thinks that... Old saying: We only use a portion tiny portion of our brains. Has not become aware of what we do when yes. we read? Because we need the whole thing to do that, right? And I love um,
0: how, how you're talking about uh, in acquiring a new a new language. And she says we learn to make these connections through multiple exposures in a long developmental process. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what I um, want to keep reminding people that it is a developmental process, and it's not, and it's not a quick process right and so this stuff by they have to do it by the end of third grade or all these timelines right that are placed on readers right it's just not realistic
1: well and I would even say uh, that the pace of a lesson needs to reflect the needs of the learner because sometimes there's um, there's a concept for teachers that's called a sense of urgency right and well what is sense of urgency what does that mean when you hear that what does it mean to you it means that we are behind and that we need to
0: rush and get to where we need to be quickly. Yeah. But at the same time, we're told we have to meet everyone's individual needs. Everyone's so needs. So it's kind of fast. contradictory. Yeah,
1: I hadn't thought of about that way. You're absolutely right. That is very hypocritical. But uh, when when I hear sense of urgency, what I've learned that phrase in the context of is um, a teacher needing to be aware that this something's important and that you have to really think about it, focus on it, plan it, and execute it, right? But I think people misunderstand sense of urgency for faster. If I'm going faster, then somehow I'm urgent. This is urgent, this is serious. And I know for the students I work with, when they're working on oral language, Okay, so think about this for a second. Kids who are learning English are learning a lang- learning a langu- language, English language while they're learning the language while they're using it. So they're learning that language but they're also having to use it to learn what's happening in their classroom. It seems like that's an impossible task. Like how did how are they able to do that? And I think that's why bilingual brains tend to be well, very well developed brains, you know, bilingual, we we tell them all the time, bilingual brains are smarter, you know, they just, and there's a lot of research behind that. But I'm just saying that whole idea of of plasticity and within limits and what the brain has to do, and then that sense of urgency telling teachers, yes, you should be focused, yes, you should care, yes, you should plan. You definitely need um, assessment data that applies to what you're doing. But it doesn't necessarily mean go faster because I know with my kids, I have to slow a lot of things down. If I don't slow it down, they're not they're not gonna own the language, the structure, the syntax, the concepts they don't know the vocabulary and yeah that that whole thing really bothers me, and I think I understand more why when I read her book
0: and I think that sense sense of urgency is really about you only have these students for a limited amount of time, mm-hmm. you have so much curriculum that you need to cover, Yeah, you don't have time to waste right. teaching things that are not important.
1: Right. So, what do you? I mean, is that but something I do, you think is true? But is I, that your philosophy too? Or are you I saying think, that's coming from? Above? I think there
0: is a sense of urgency to okay. you. Only have them for a limited amount of time. Yeah. Be selective. Be Make intentional. good choices. Don't
1: waste their time. But I do yeah. understand
0: what you're saying. The message is: do it fast, <laughs>
1: faster, faster. Instead yeah.
0: of instead yeah. of well and deep. Right. Right. Mm-hmm.
1: To me, a teacher who's prepared knows his or her kids has that data ready that that formative data that applies to the task at hand and knows what to do that's a teacher with urgency and whether or not that teacher has to teach in a slower format or a faster format is really for the teacher to decide based on the kids in front of them
0: well and it's all relative some for for some content you may be able to breeze right through depending on how they how they absorb it yes and for something else it, it might take longer right so you're going to catch up your time, maybe, mm-hmm. you know, in other parts of the of the school year. But I do understand what you mean.
1: Yeah, and sometimes I have to tell teachers if if we're doing something with kids and they're worried that we're not the kids aren't going fast enough. You have to go slow to go fast. You know, you have to get that foundation. And she, uh, Marianne Wolf, talks about that. Not in this chapter. We get into that in the next chapter, but about the whole idea of consolidation I love that word she uses firming things up before you go on and then bring kids to all these other different types of reading. Um, she worries a lot about them things not being fully formed because the brain has to consolidate right? these processes. What do you think about attention? I really want to talk about that for a second. I want to know what you think about her focus on attention because she's going to talk about that a lot.
0: Well, I talked about that earlier because I see it every day and I see attention dwindling. It's harder and harder. I hear a lot about engagement. You have to engage the kids. You have to get the kids engaged and it's because we're fighting technology which is colorful and fast-paced and has bells and whistles and is exciting Mm -hmm. and sometimes picture books are not exciting there we kind of slow down the pace Mm -hmm. when we read and there are no bells and whistles there but there are these beautiful illustrations and it's just another medium that they have but they have to slow down to take that in where when they're looking at something on a computer or, or digitally there's not much slowing down there.
1: I do know what you mean? And I think in the in the book, when she talks about you know the rings, which you outlined really nicely, all the different rings. Um, when she talks about attention, and she discusses how uh, she it's a kind of a cognitive workspace that cognitive ring and that that's where the kids develop their working memory. And I just think about, you know, it says, this is what you do um, for everything from solving math problems in your head to remembering digits in a phone number, letters in a word, words in a sentence. I've heard so many teachers say that that's hard for kids, that they are not, you know, they say, oh, they have it and then they don't. And it really is making me intensely curious about the effect of, you know, the digital world that the kids are immersed in and this working memory it seems like I hear a lot more about kids needing uh, not having that very well developed I agree (laughs) you you see it I mean I see it
0: I see it and I think it's taking longer for, at least the students that I work with, it's taking longer to acquire letters sometimes, letter recognition, sight word recognition. Yeah. They're really having to manipulate the words, build them, yeah. write them, use them. And we know it takes multiple, multiple exposures mm-hmm. um, before you, you know a word. But I feel like really delving in and they have to not only see the word, read the word, not in isolation, but actually using it in context, writing it in context over and over and over. Yeah. And they still um, sometimes can't retrieve it when they see it in a book or right. or, or, or when they're going to write it.
1: Even despite and efforts to explicitly help them, the words transfer, right? Transfer yes. it. You use that mm-hmm. word a lot and it's a great concept that they should be able to apply it, transfer it and... Even when you explicitly are showing them that, a lot of times it seems like more often they're not able to do that. It just, it feels like something is very true to this idea.
0: Well, I even feel like I have a hard time pulling up my words. Yeah. The vocabulary I want to use, what I want mm-hmm. to say, I have to pause. hmm Because there's so much going on in my brain and I'm exposed to so much information in one day
1: yeah
0: and so many things to remember it's hard for me to i have to write a lot of things down um even daily tasks or i just simply cannot remember i don't remember phone numbers much anymore do you remember when you actually had to yes dial a phone number mm-hmm.
1: i still remember all and my friends phone numbers from high school i if i sit down and think about someone i can remember their phone number still but i don't know my own son's phone number
0: I'm so glad you said that. Because
1: he's on speed dial. My This is my youngest, okay? My other two I do. But my youngest, he just got the phone, of course, and younger than the other two did because they had, you know how it is with the youngest. But,
0: yeah, I don't know his phone number. I don't know my son's either. My daughter gives me grief about that because in my phone, it's his name. Right. And so I just, I don't have to dial it. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. like you said, I can retrieve my grandmother's phone number, Yeah, has been deceased for over yeah. 12 years, and right. because it's, I don't use it, and yeah. I don't need to do that. It's just a swipe. I call him, mm-hmm. and Lordy, if I ever forget my phone, or lose my phone, I, w- I won't be able to He's just free. free. He can do whatever he wants. His mom has <laughs> yeah.
1: never stopped him.
0: <laughs> but that's so funny, because if you don't use it, that saying, if you don't use it, mm-hmm. you lose it, and... Um, there's definitely something to the brain being overwhelmed, yeah, and I'm sure that that's what our kids.
1: Oh, I are mean, feeling. how do they know what to pay attention to? How right. do they know what to attend to? Because there's so many um, people that are intentionally competing for their attention, and they'll do what they need to do to get it. And I don't think everybody realizes how people like that that could be their full time job in a company in a tech company is to figure out how to get eyeball time or how to oh, get right. people to spend more time looking at and kids they don't have any way to self monitor that and adults don't always know either i mean myself included i don't always know it's something you have to constantly be paying attention to but i think that goes back
0: to falling into that book yeah and getting lost yeah. and building that stamina They don't have it because in a book, there's no one competing for your attention unless you start to get invested in that story or invested in those characters. And if you're not used to doing that, you quit that book before that has an opportunity to happen.
1: Yeah, Alicia, I never you thought know. of that. Oh, yeah. Oh my gosh, that's then, a really good point. Oh wow. And what
0: did she say earlier about too long didn't read? TLDR, too long didn't read. <laughs> um, but yeah, they they don't even have the opportunity to be engaged. You know, it could take a chapter or two before you're invested yeah. in the story and invested in the character and they've long abandoned that that book.
1: Yeah. If we want to circle it back around to where we started with the, um, before we close it down, I know there's a couple lines at the end of this letter too that we love, but, um, just to think back to, yeah, has it changed for me? Yeah, it has changed for me. I noticed that I, um, I, you know, books are, books have always been my love and my haven and I have tried to intentionally bring myself back to, Books now for me, an e-reader is fine. I don't have a problem with e-reader versus um, a paper book. I love both of those. I think e-readers make it much easier to carry books around and store books because I, gosh knows, I have a lot of them. But I do know that when I'm reading now, I try to purposely, you know, turn everything off, shut the door, and just give myself, you know, turn on my maybe my timer on my phone, give myself a full. 30 minutes to just read and not do anything else and i'm finding that there ha- i have moved away from from how i used to read and that makes me sad because that's a real that's a real part uh, that i cherish of who i am and that's happened without me realizing it so we can come back to it but i think what she's going to teach us is that our kids unless they develop it consolidate it you know confirm all of the the ways they need to know how to read so they can get deep into a book, if they never form that, then that's going to be something totally different for them. It'll be a never had, not a go back to. That makes me sad. I know, you look sad. I'm sorry, please don't cry. (laughs) Yeah, but I'm so uh, grateful for this book. I think that this is a labor of love for her. It must be.
0: Oh my gosh. I just have to, um, on page 34, Mm -hmm. she says that, she is humbled by the enormity of what banks up this reading act, which most humans completely take for granted. And that goes back to people just think it's this natural process that you're just born to know it's going to evolve. If you're just exposed to words, if you're exposed to books, you will just magically Mm -hmm. learn how to read. And I just, I just, I have this heart beside, I just so Uh, appreciate that mm -hmm. because I feel like we, we do take it for granted and it's, it's just so important and I'll, and I just want our kids to be able to do that and to to have that enjoyment and choice.
1: Talked about when we were preparing for this podcast, about how you know, are there actionable steps here with what we're reading in this book? You know, because we're not we're not getting rid of cell phones; they're not no. going away. No. Computers here to stay. Tablets here to stay. You know, in some form or fashion, and so. The thing that you're talking about—that passion, that love of reading—there might be people out there who say, "Yeah, I never really had that, and I'm fine." You know, that's not sure. such a—that's not such a, you know, that's not such a terrible thing to not, you know, fall into a book or whatever. That that feeling of associating with the character and so on. But uh, Marianne Wolf does talk about some additional reasons, brain-based reasons why we need to care about this. It's not just about, oh, those are book people. They love books and they want everyone to love books. Yes, we are. Yes, we do. But we also know that there are some other things that we need to pay attention to with this too. And we kind of touched on it with the memory and the attention. What does that mean for us, for being able to have stamina, stick to a task, do a job that's difficult? So, That's coming. All of that's coming. So
0: maybe our message is that you don't have to be a book lover, but you can grow. You can change. Your brain is constantly growing and changing, Mm -hmm. and you just never know. I want our kids to have a choice. I want them to be able to make the choice and say, I like this. I don't like that. I choose this. I want to read this. I just want them to have, have the choice to do that.
1: Right, and we also want, um, even if you're not a so-called book person, you still have stake in this for your your kid. Even if you're not, you know, you're like, it's okay, my kid doesn't love to read, you know, novels or whatever. You still need to have a stake in this because this is affecting how the brain is developing over time, and it's going to affect... All aspects of participating in a literary based society, which I think we still are. I mean, we are, right? We still are. Of course, I think so. Yeah, and we know that there are a lot of people who are getting misinformed about things, and there are um, others who are taking advantage of people's lack of maybe ability to research on their own to read deeply and critically, and that's another part of this. It's important for our, our citizenry to know how to learn on their own and make decisions about what they're reading. And we're going to talk more about that in the next episode in um, chapter three. Yes, as
0: that comes up.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think that was good. That was a good first episode. We hope you'll get the book, Read or come Home. By uh, Marianne Wolfe. By Marianne Wolf. We're going to see if we can um, get some messages with Marianne Wolf on Twitter. So I was excited to see her there. Um, and maybe um, start saving some questions for her that she might be willing to answer. And we're going to dig deep into this book for all of us, for our kids, and our own children, our biological children, our students. And all of the children um, out there who we believe have the right to the very best reading brain. And
0: we would love to hear what you think. We are at www.mertonmorganconsulting.com. And we're also on Face. We have a Facebook page. We do. Instagram and Twitter. So mm-hmm. if you visit any of those mediums, let us know. Give us a comment or just say hey. We would love to to hear what you have to say about it. All right. Good night, then. Bye-bye.